Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. My name is Julie Hyatt, and I am your hostess for today. Um, I serve as our Senior Director of Population Health here at NetSmart, and I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. So first, we have Carrie Norris, who is the Emergency Services Coordinator at Rappahannock Area Community Services Board. Carrie has been fostering relationships between law enforcement, the community, and providers through her leadership and management of crisis programs. Um, She is joined today by her colleague, Brandi Williams, who's Director of Operations at Rappahannock um, Area Community Services Board, long there. Um, We have been following the story of Rappahannock um, through our partnership with them and the state of Virginia. Um, So some of you may have seen a webinar that we did several months ago. So we're continuing on the journey um, as the state and as Rappahannock area um, continues on their journey with crisis. So we're going to first get started um, with some introductions. So Brandy, why don't you introduce yourself and let everybody know what do you do in in your role at Rappahannock? Thanks, Julie. Um, Well, as Julie mentioned, I am Brandy Williams. I'm the Director of Operations here at the Rappahannock Area Community Services Board. My primary role is to kind of act at the intersection of leveraging technology and business and workflow processes to create efficiencies and support quality service delivery. Great. All right. So, Carrie, how about you? Um, Thank you, Julie. As you said, my name is Carrie. I'm the Emergency Services Coordinator for our agency. And what that means essentially is um, we have a team of staff that operate in primarily crisis work where we go out and assess individuals who are experiencing a mental health or behavioral health crisis and help link them to the appropriate level of care, be that inpatient hospitalization or outpatient resources. Um, And that's primarily our role. Great. So let's dive in. So how long have you all been offering crisis services? Um, As an agency, so the way Virginia is structured, we have community services board across the entire state. And of the community services board services, one of the only mandated services is actually emergency services to provide that crisis service. So it's something that it's literally from the beginning always been offered as far as our agency's existence, which how we're 50 years old, Brandy, is that correct? Are, we're actually entering our 51st year. Well, so I would, <laughs> yeah, so I would say as long as we've pretty much been operational, you know, crisis services have always been an integral part of what we offer. Great. So as you know, um, across the country, lots of people are either starting their crisis uh, management services or they're expanding that as part of either 988 or CCBHC. So let's start um, talk about how you guys started. So what was really your first step um, in building relationships and getting a good foundation um, of a crisis management? Because it probably, I assume, goes beyond just what you do. You're working with others in the community etc. Sure. I would say that partnerships is a huge part of the work that we do in particular here at RACSB. For us, obviously, we have private partners through our hospital partners that are in our area that we work with closely in helping people receive the level of care they need. But also, you know, we recognized 
back in, well, in 2009 for us, we recognized that there's a pretty significant intersection between law enforcement and, and behavioral health. Um, in fact, honestly, when we work with law enforcement, they're really the first responders to people in a crisis. It's not the behavioral health person necessarily identifying that crisis on the front end. And so we began working with crisis intervention training, which is CIT, which is an international training that helps teach law enforcement how to recognize and respond to someone who's experiencing a behavioral health crisis. We formed that, like I said, we did our first groups of trainings back in 2009 as an agency when we recognized the need to, to have that in our area. And since then, it's obviously grown tremendously as far as the impact it has on our capacity to serve people that are experiencing crises. We now have an assessment center at our local emergency department here in Fredericksburg, where police can do an exchange of custody to have individuals brought in to be evaluated who are experiencing a crisis. And we obviously offer trainings throughout the year to our law enforcement partners. We work collaboratively, meeting monthly with law enforcement stakeholders to try and ensure that we're giving the best response and working collaboratively in a way that has the best outcome for the individuals we serve. Um, so I would say that was probably when we started to have a pretty significant transition. Additionally, in the early 2000s, we began offering crisis stabilization services, which is like a lesser level of care than inpatient, but still a higher level of care than outpatient. And that certainly made, started to make a big difference in the service array that we're able to offer people. Great. So it sounds like to me, um, you guys kind of went down this path before there was an event. So oftentimes we see um, the media focuses on a negative interaction um, with mental health and law enforcement. And you guys really built that foundation um, before something happened, not as a result or an action um, reaction to that. Would that be would that be correct? Yeah, interestingly, CIT itself was formed in our in our country as a reaction in Tennessee to a, a fatal shooting, unfortunately, of an individual in crisis. And then that's obviously when it spearheaded there. It started to come to Virginia as a whole in the like early to mid 2000s. And then as it came to Virginia, yes, our agency recognized that we started taking a lot of steps for diversion. So the goal being to try and identify people with mental illness in the community and divert them from the legal system when possible, when that's the appropriate next step. Um, and as part of all of those diversion efforts that we began implementing like within our jail system, in addition to the community side, that's when we really wanted to make the effort to be more proactive and obviously engage with CIT to try and have that initial intercept of someone in a crisis before it gets to that point. Yeah, great. And we know the last couple of years have been a challenge for everybody across the country, and COVID has really made an impact um, physically, location-wise, and um, you know what's happening with um, people's mental health. So quickly, how how did you you guys shift um, based off of COVID, or did you need to because you had a good foundation? We definitely. I mean, there is a shift for sure. Obviously. Telehealth has like been around for a good while, but certainly it's been highlighted significantly in the last couple of years. And so for us, we obviously were, we transitioned to primarily doing all of our assessments initially when COVID started via telehealth, which helped certainly us be more efficient as a team because we respond to several different hospitals in different locations and counties. And so it helped us to be more responsive. And so I, there's certainly benefits from this that have lend itself to us figuring out better ways to have more effective workflows and things. But definitely the other side of it is that thankfully, because we had such a strong foundation with our law enforcement partners, 
you know, COVID has impacted significantly our ability to find appropriate placement for individuals in the private hospital system and the state hospital system in Virginia. And that's created a significant delay in admissions, which has created a very significant strain on law enforcement resources. And they're also experiencing short staff issues, just like across the country, every field is right now. And so for us, yeah, I would say that having that foundation of a strong relationship entering this time made a huge impact in our ability to navigate it with them in a way that's still been meaningful and helpful to the people we serve. I I don't know that across the state that's always consistently happening, but I know that for us, we've been really fortunate in our area and we rely a lot on our law enforcement partners to be understanding that this is a very challenging time. Sure, absolutely. So let's go back to that stakeholder group that that you talked about previously. So how did that group help you kind of determine a go forward strategy um, with crisis? And as the state moves to, you know, a statewide crisis system, um, how did those stakeholders um, play out in that? So in our stakeholder group, just to give an idea of what it's comprised of, it's we serve five different jurisdictions and counties. So they have a police representative from each of their sheriff or respective police office that is part of our stakeholder group. In addition to that, we have a magistrate that oversees and sits in to provide that impact of feedback. We have our private hospital partners that attend. Someone obviously from our agency um, attends the meeting. In addition to just having, again, kind of a blend of different disciplines that are all part of it. And the purpose of the meeting was really helpful because again, when things happen that don't go as well, we're able to process them as a group, come up with solutions. We've created a lot of like memorandums of understanding to be able to work collaboratively together to make sure everyone feels their needs are being met. Mm -hmm. So yes, as we've now had to push into some changes that are happening at a legislative level to certainly enhance the crisis response, which directly impacts law enforcement through the Marcus Alert legislation. We've been really fortunate that our partners were already in a place where they are very mindful and compassionate towards mental health and behavioral health issues, and they want to do what's best for the right reasons. And so I think building that foundation has made it easier for us to navigate the fact that we're asking a pretty big reach of them. And it's a pretty big ask what law enforcement's having to take on right now to continue to manage a behavioral health system that they are obviously, in their mind, kind of like, this is not actually our job, but somehow we're still having to do the brunt of this. Um, And so it's really made a big difference in us being able to navigate that. And then, I mean, they show up every month, so they're still showing up every month to do it. So that certainly is fortunate and work with us on that. Yeah, that's great. So I, and I love the collaboration because it really is, it's not the, the community service board's issue. It is a community issue. It is everybody. Um, So it really does take a village um, in order to build that collaboration and work together. Um, And we'll talk about this a little later, but how technology can help um, serve that as well, because we know everybody has their own systems and often it's very siloed. But when you're talking about a crisis, um, the sharing of information um, securely and in the right way um, is extremely, extremely important. So let's um, shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about training. So you mentioned that you do training um, to law enforcement, um, which is great. How about other community training or, you know, the people that are on the crisis line? So on the forefront of crisis, what does that training look like? And has that changed at all with the shift to a, a statewide model? Well, so to be to do an emergency services role and to be an emergency services therapist, we have a state process of certification to be what's called a Virginia pre-admission screener. 
So there is this structured curriculum that's existed for a significant amount of time. And that is something that all essentially we call them pre-screeners go through to be able to do crisis assessments. I will say additionally, in addition to that, they are looking at trying to increase some of the, because we're trying to obviously increase our mobile crisis response and, and build a mobile crisis system to have more immediate response in the community. And they are creating some statewide trainings around what that mobile crisis clinician should have as far as being equipped with skill-wise and things like that. So that's something new that's come out. I would say, and this is not even related to the statewide system, but as an agency, we've done a really good job increasing, um, ironically, I provide the training, so I'm not trying to just say that because it's the training that I do, but <laughs> as an agency, we've recognized, and you know, in the last two years, actually, it's probably been at least six or seven instances where we've provided a training on compassion fatigue related to like COVID and burnout and things like that, because it's a lot. So it's a lot right now for clinicians, you know, in addition to other community partners. And so I think that's been something that has been, in general, I think actually there's been a huge increase in the state for regional trainings because we are doing a lot more virtual things, which has been amazing. So I know that I feel like every month there's always new trainings coming up that the state's been supporting and advocating for and our regional level's been doing. So I think that's been really a good benefit as well as like this concept. It's again, like we just all of a sudden figured out how computers work and now everyone's like, <laughs> you can have virtual trainings, you can do Zoom, you can do all these things and people are doing it so much more readily instead of having to just go in person. And it's been great because training makes people feel more equipped to do their job and makes them feel invested in. So, yes, absolutely. So um, and I, I wanted to, Julie, jump, I wanted to jump in really quick because I think this ties in the training piece ties to what you were talking about. Um, it being not just a Rappahannock area or behavioral health response, but more of a community response. And I think it is important to have a well-trained and qualified workforce on the crisis um, continuum supporting that, whether it's through our community services board or through our law enforcement. But the response is... It, our responsibility and our response is even more to that community-wide trainings. And so to support that, there's also been kind of parallel efforts to have a well-trained and prepared community from everything from mental health first aid for both child and, and adult versions and assist training and rapid revive to help um, you know, our community be able to respond, you know, in situations where they may have come across community members. Um, suffering an, an opioid overdose. And so I think it, and, and even ACEs training. So I think that it, it takes a bit of both. We need that intensive skill training for our workforce and for those first responders, but also leveraging um, kind of that community base of knowledge through offering these trainings free to our community so that we can um, all serve as kind of those first responders um, to help prevent crisis. Yeah, I love that um, as a mental health first aid trainer. Um, I, I love that because it's so important um, for people that, uh, I mean, all of us, we all are going to impact, make an impact and um, be impacted um, by a person um, with a mental illness or a challenge or life in general. So I think those types of trainings can help everybody in the awareness and breaking down the stigma um, so important um, in the community as well as law enforcement for all of us, really. Um, and one thing I want to touch on that you said, Carrie, is you know the compassionate fatigue or compassion fatigue, and um, it's a it's hard work. It's very hard work. Like 
I um, started my uh, career as a crisis case manager um, at the ripe old age of 22 years old um, that I knew a whole lot. And then, you know, you take your first suicide call and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, and so it is a lot. It takes toll um, on people. So I, I love that it's really kind of a, it's a three-pronged approach. So community education, and it's um, those that are on the line and, uh, you know, taking care of yourself so you can take care of others. Um, I think oftentimes um, people miss that piece. So you're, you're focusing on all of those different aspects, which I, I think is great. Um, so, um, we talked a lot about, you know, again, the community, um, the responders, et cetera. As we move towards 988, um, and everybody that is probably listening to this is trying to solve for this in their state, their community, um, how, have, how is that um, going to change what you do or will it change what you do? Um, and what do you see as an impact of rolling out 988? So for us, it's kind of unique in Virginia, and I don't know that a lot of states are experiencing this. We have these parallel things that are occurring at the same time simultaneously. We have the Murgers Alert legislation, which was the result of the unfortunate, um, the fatal shooting of Marcus David Peters, who was um, a gentleman experiencing a behavioral health crisis. And, and he was obviously, unfortunately, killed in that incident. And so then it sparked this legislation of we need this, this co-response with behavioral health and law enforcement. This has to happen. This needs to happen. We need to improve how we serve people in our community. So that legislation is happening at the exact same time that 988 is rolling out. And so they've kind of married those two together in some aspects where they're taking the Marks Alert legislation that has protocols that are mandated for law enforcement when they receive behavioral health calls, how to triage them, and certain calls that they're triaging, they're supposed to be connecting those calls as opposed to the 911 dispatcher directly to our 988 call centers. So there's this you know, like I said, they've been married together in this way with the legislation. And so for us, we're training law enforcement actively how to receive calls, how to triage and how to qualify them based on the legislation and what it indicates. And then obviously linking those people to 988. So I think for one, I think obviously the goal would help lessen the load of some of what, you know, 911 and first responders are encountering if they can link these like kind of lower level calls to 988 to talk it through with them instead. I think from a community perspective, all of our community services board operate 24 hour emergency service crisis lines as part of our CSB system. So we still have our crisis line, but certainly obviously 988 will be another resource in our region. And we did the, the call centers for us are done regionally across the state because Virginia is divided into five planning regions. And so each region has their own call center respectively that will be linked to 988. I certainly see, you know, benefit to how that's going to hopefully be an additional resource for people that are obviously not wanting, like maybe they're hesitant to call because it is law enforcement. So they don't know who to call. And, you know, I do think that is going to be an ultimate, hopefully benefit in general, having people be able to more easily access behavioral health needs. I also think, again, it helps with the appropriate response because not all calls that come in to law enforcement are necessarily requiring a law enforcement response and could probably have a behavioral health response led response only and be appropriate for that level of care. So I certainly see and hope that there'll be a lot of benefit. And I think having it connected to that legislation is going to ultimately be helpful and ensuring that it is well utilized, obviously, by 
911, people that are calling into 911, being able to be linked to that as an additional resource. So um, what I hear in a lot of that, obviously coming from the technology side, is you need technology to support the work that you're doing. So not only from um, when the call comes in, but how do you disperse that information? How do you make sure you get somebody to the right level of care? How do you share information with others that are part of that care continuum? Um, so uh, Brandy, I'll let you wrap it up since technology is a big part of what you do day in and day out. So how do you see the technology supporting um, the work that you guys are doing um, from a crisis perspective and as 988 is rolled out? Sure. So I think the 980 legislation and really this increased attention in the overall crisis continuum has brought to light the need for technology that supports not only um, efficient and accurate, but really interoperability. So um, because we've realized that the response takes numerous stakeholders and it's unrealistic to expect all these stakeholders will be on the same technology system or developed for the same purpose. And so what we need to create simultaneously with our workflows and how to implement this legislation is the technology that's needed to get the information from point A to point B and then C and then back to point A because our individuals, you know, go through the process and are at different stages as they're presenting for a crisis. And, and all that information is vital for timely and quality um, intervention to help us avoid kind of moving to more restrictive um, options in the crisis continuum. So I think it's really important that we leverage the technology out there to increase those opportunities for cross-system communication and cross-stakeholder communication in a way that does not overburden the people who are actually providing the crisis services because that's priority one and we need to take care of our people so that they can take care of the people who are in crisis. And so we need to be very cognizant of the technology decisions we're making to ensure that we're providing guardrails and not barriers to the process um, and using technology to support the kind of strategic plan of developing out this crisis continuum versus um, it, it kind of providing more things we have to get over. So I think that we do that by being very intentional with our technology choices with the priority to be able to share that information kind of across the partners so everybody can make informed decisions on how best to coordinate the care and support the individuals, which is ultimately um, each partner's goal. And just to add really quick, like Brandy said, I think sometimes things get lost in translation for why and what and who we're doing these things for. But the ultimate end user of this system, the 988 system, is a, a loved one, a family member, an individual themselves experiencing a crisis. And as it stands now, there's three suicide hotlines you can text, you can call. There's We have multiple regional initiatives for someone that's intellectually disabled versus someone who's a kid versus an adult versus, you know, there's like 50 numbers. You could have a whole Rolodex of numbers to, to draw on your, your local ES number. So there's all these different numbers. And again, when you're a loved one or yourself experiencing a crisis, the last thing you need to do is figure out like, okay, which one do I meet criteria for to call? Is this a warm line that I need to call? Is this a, wait, do I have that diagnosis? Do I call this person? And right. so instead having that streamlined approach, I think ultimately is going to be beneficial because the last thing you need in a crisis, if you're personally experiencing it or your loved one is, is to have to sift through and figure out and get transferred from person to person because you don't know who to call. 
That's right. I think that's a, a very, very good point. I mean, the whole process needs to be seamless um, because, again, in a crisis situation, you know, you don't have the time um, or the wherewithal to to have to make those decisions. So um, thank you both today so much for so uh, many things. So thank you for joining the podcast and sharing your experiences and insights. Thank you both so much for the work that you do day in and day out. I know that it is tough, um, but I also know that it is very important and um, really appreciate you sharing your insights um, and what you're doing in Virginia. Um, and we'll continue on with this conversation another time as the journey continues. Um, but again, thank you so much um, for your time and talking with us today. So for those listening, um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. We'll continue to produce content you find engaging and informative. So that's a wrap, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.